If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we will talk to Broncos kicker Brandon McManus about his passion for food blogging and his legitimate efforts to stop bullying among young people. Awesome stuff there. And with the legendary Canadian rock band, The Tragically Hip, ending their career, quite, you know, quite unfortunately, actually, Gareth will look into the band's cultural impact and perhaps its greatest gift to the culture at large, making the Maple Leafs seem cool even when they suck. We will also slam some hammers, give you some distractions, and so much more. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer. Not in Chicago this week. I am in Southern California, surviving a week spent at SeaWorld. No Adam with us. He'll be back soon, but we have our two other mainstays on the line. In our Brooklyn Bureau, it's our seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes. Gareth, you were at the Mets playoff debacle, but did you leave early when you realized it wasn't a Billy Joel concert? Actually, Billy Joel was one of the first concerts I ever saw. It was 10 years old, Stormfront Tour with my parents. Um I've really come to not like his music. <laughs> yes. But <clears throat> <laughs> sorry for that cough. Yeah. No, I've really come to hate him uh, as a guy who grew up in the Midwest. Uh, we get John Cougar Mellencamp and the East Coast gets Billy Joel. And as I moved out here and Billy Joel is just everywhere. I was like, yeah, I don't like this at all. This is not aged with me. Um, <laughs> My favorite Billy Joel song is the Down Easter Alexa, which is the most ridiculous song ever. Uh, it's like, hey, we're running out of unfortunate subcultures in America to talk about <laughs> about fishermen in the Northeast. Well, so that is from the Stormfront album, which is the tour that I went to. So that gets you the Down Easter Alexa and We Didn't Start the Fire and Stormfront. I mean, look, is it any wonder that that seemed cool and I was 10 and it has not aged with me? <laughs> so so what there you go. My hot take on Billy Joel is this. An essential pop artist starts to break down when people want to take him a little bit more seriously as like an important rock and roll institution. Fair, Gareth? Yeah, I mean, he was a, he was a songwriter. He was like a brill building songwriter and then all of a sudden it becomes something much more serious to your point yes and on that note looking forward to discovering billy joel in the year 2035 in chicago (laughs) he is back he is the 40 year old millennial we call him joe reed joe you have returned from egypt what was the best thing you did there uh, Egypt was amazing. Best thing by far was this desert tour we did. Uh, leaving Cairo, you head west for like four hours into the middle of the desert, um, and you climb these dunes and you go to these valleys and then you just camp out under the stars. It was unreal. That was that was the highlight of the trip. Can I ask Joe? Um, 
light pollution has become such a major issue, Frank, like in the world. I read an article about it a few years mm-hmm. ago. And there are very few places in the U.S. that are actually untouched by it and the light from major cities. Yeah. What was it like out in the desert? Like, was it – could you see stars? Like, how dark was it? What oh. was your impression of the darkness? So you – so from Cairo, it's about 100 and whatever miles – no, 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 what, what, maybe 250 miles to this oasis – which is very small rural village. And then we were probably when we camped, we were probably another 90 miles into the desert from the Oasis. So you're 90 miles from any form of civilization. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was just so striking. So the sun goes down and the moon, it was like a full moon and you can see almost as clear as day. I mean, it is like, it is shockingly bright just with the moon. You could, everyone has a long Mm -hmm. shadow. And we all go to sleep and you can see some stars. We all go to sleep. And then at about three in the morning, we all woke up after the moon had gone down. So it was just about an hour or two before the sun came up. And you have never seen stars like that in your life. You could see from one horizon up through the sky and over to the other direction, like the banding of the Milky Way galaxy. You could see like it was unlike anything you've ever seen. I mean, I've, I've, you, I've, I don't think I've ever been that removed from, um, you know, civilization, let alone like a huge building. I mean, living in Chicago, you got to, I don't know how far you have to go to, to avoid the light pollution here. Um, so it mm-hmm. was just unlike anything you've ever seen. It was amazing. Yeah. Not to sound like Dick Cheney awesome. guys, but I'm on the side of artificial light here. <laughs> I see some benefits <laughs> to it. Joe, you can share some photos of your, of your stargazing. I'm good reading at night. All right. <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. You got your uh, you know, your Kindle with the backlight and sitting in your nice little hotel. It's all good. All right. So, that's what's going on with us. Time to transition to what's going on with the sports world. As you know on this show, we don't just invite people on that is boring. We go public with our invites. We slam the hammer on unsuspecting souls who have expressed an interest in something they love away from their primary sport. So guys, let's slam some hammers quickly. Gareth who do you want to invite on the show? Uh, this past weekend, or I guess a week before, was the end of baseball season, and it brought with it the end of Dick Enberg's career. Uh, an illustrious career that spanned tennis, baseball, football, Super Bowls. Um, I think he was a part of Super Bowl One, if I recall. Uh just an absolutely legendary broadcaster, someone I got the opportunity to work with very little, but uh, on a couple occasions at CBS. And um, I, I know for a fact it's part of the Thursday Night Football Open coming this week, kind of honoring him as football returns to San Diego and uh, it's come back to L.A. this year. Everyone I talked to who worked for years with Dick loves the man and says he has the most gorgeous house they've ever seen and is just the decor like impeccable taste is frequently used with Dick Enberg Hmm. and like my parents um, and Brad's family uh, he was a professor so I would like to talk to Dick Enberg about his life his home his stories but also about academia I love that idea love Dick Enberg Joe 
Slam the hammer for us, buddy. All right. Um, I'm probably running out of time on this one. I want to, and I think we've already slammed the hammer down to him, Brad. I think you might have in an early episode. I want to talk to Tim Tebow. Um, I think you slammed the hammer about his foundation, which uh, I think you're a fan of. I think yeah. it has something to do with high school dances or something. Is that right? They do proms for special needs kids, something my wife has also yes. been involved with. Um, so not only the foundation, but I've, I feel like I've seen him in the news a lot lately. Um, he, he just seems like for all the crap he gets, he seems like a, a pretty upstanding guy. Um, he was just at, you know, a recent game. He's for people who don't know, he's switching, um, athletic careers and moving or attempting to move into baseball. So I want to get him before it's his full, full full-time job. But like a fan had a seizure at a game that he was recently playing in and he like (laughs) stopped. Did you see this? He like stopped after the game and like went and sat with the fan and like waited for paramedics to arrive and like prayed with him. Um, I just saw this post game interview because I think they're going into their fall season now in his the league he's in where this interviewer is like, do you ever think of, um, you know, what if it doesn't work out? What if what if you fail? And he goes on this like two minute sort of self exploration of like what failure means. And he's like, failure. Why do we need to be afraid of failure? Like failure isn't the ultimate fear. It should be regret. And he, he just kept going on and on and on. Um, so I just like. I feel like he's got his head in the right place. I feel like people gave him a lot of crap for trying to switch to baseball. I think if he can do it, more power to him. Like if you can pursue your passion and an alternative career, like hell, I say go for it. I like I think I like Tim Tebow. I think we should have him on the show. He seems like a good guy. Yeah, Joe, I have squarely moved into the pro Tebow camp, which I felt like was impossible three years ago. And now I'm like, Yes. <laughs> I'm like, this guy's just living the dream life that he wants. Go for it, brah. Like I'm I'm all about Exactly. It. It's like if <laughs> if I could go pro in in something else, like and just switch and 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 commit to it as hard as he's doing it, like absolutely more power to you. I I yeah, I don't know. He got so a bag I, of- I feel like he's gotten a bad rap and uh yeah, I wish him all the all the best. He got a bag of crap from somewhere I was reading because they're like he only signed with the Mets because they would honor his ESPN hosting gig, and I'm like Awesome negotiating, bro. <laughs> like, good job. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, I don't know. I've just seen a lot of good coming from his direction. So, I think uh, I think it'd be a fun a fun conversation to have. Love it. All right, guys. Quickly, I was on Twitter. I've been on vacation in Southern California with the fam. I was watching the Ryder Cup, and uh, you know, Arnold Palmer unfortunately passed away right around the. Um, you know, right around the same time. And I was seeing some tributes mm-hmm. online to him, and and there was a nice video that was a poem, one of his favorite poems that was read by some of his former friends and rivals, uh, one of whom was Gary Player. So, you know, the legendary Hall of Fame golfer, the Black Knight, Mr. Fitness. He's also known as the world's most traveled man, <laughs> unconfirmed. <laughs> but I love the idea to think that <laughs> he has logged more air, air miles than anyone on Earth. Which is maybe legit. He lives in South Africa, so just coming back and forth. Uh, well, he lives in South Africa, and he was flying so much at an era when a lot of people weren't, and he's been doing it for so long. I'm not saying yeah. he's. I'm yeah, sure he's there's a won. pilot out there who's traveled more, but man, he's up there. So he posted this video, and someone like shot back at him. And you know, when you think about a guy like Gary Player, I think he's 80 or 81. You think about maybe maybe he's got some interns, you know, sort of running his social channels, right? And he posted this thing, and then someone gets right back to him about 
Palmer and his relationship with Palmer, perhaps like part of their rivalry. And Gary Player just like jumped on this dude on Twitter, it, but not like in a jerk way, but like in a really razor sharp, witty way. So I kind of fell down this rabbit hole and I was like, Gary Player has still got it. He is still super active. He is super whip smart. He's really involved on social media. So I think we just have to have Gary on. We got to break it down, break down whatever. He, we go a lot of different ways. We could talk about his, you know, clearly uh, jam-packed uh, collection of airline miles. He's also involved in horse, <laughs> horse breeding. He used to play cricket. I actually would like an explainer on cricket, and maybe he might be someone to talk to about it. I think he's, he's also big into rugby coming from South Africa. Um, and then he's been super politically active, too. I mean, he's a guy that Nelson Mandela spoke highly of about his political role in uh you know healing the situation in south africa so gary player Mm. would love to have you on expect us reaching out on that and uh hopefully we can talk soon all right if you got someone you want to talk to email us just not sports at gmail.com or tweet us at just not sports right now we're going to take a quick break we've got two interviews coming up one that i did one that gareth did and, you know, before our distractions, and in two wildly different situations. The first is uh, Denver Broncos kicker Brandon McManus, Super Bowl champion last year, set a playoff record for most field goals in a playoff game, actually. We're, we're going to talk to Brandon about his food blogging. He's been writing food, not so much reviews as, as sort of just experiences. Like, he just goes out with his wife and, and, and surveys the Denver food scene. The Broncos are all behind it. They've been posting them online. There was a great Ringer article earlier this football season about it. So we're going to break that down. We're also going to talk to him about his anti-bullying crusade. And then, Gareth, why don't you break down a little bit more about where this tragically hip thing came about? Because they're one of Canada's most popular bands. And for music lovers like yourself, clearly you know them. But tell a little bit, give, it, <laughs> uh, uh, give us an elevator speech on what exactly you were hoping to find and what their connection to the sports world was. So that's that was an interview we re- I recorded this summer in late August, and it was around the time that the Tragically Hip gave their final concert. Basically, what happened is Gord Downey, the lead singer and the poet, and he's kind of this guy that holds this position as kind of the poet laureate of Canada, the Bruce Springsteen slash. It's like if Bruce Springsteen and Michael Stipe were one guy and were beloved by a country, and he and the band announced their final tour because he had inoperable brain cancer. And so it really became this national uh, story. And so I wanted to talk to somebody about it. Talk to this gentleman, Otto Chung. He's actually a sports editor up in Toronto and he played hockey with, he was a longtime hip fan and he played hockey with Gord Downey. They wrote a lot about hockey and, there was their song 50 mission cap, which is about a hockey player. They wrote about them. Uh, they wrote another song called the lonely end of the rink. I mean, there is a lot of hockey. Look, this is a band that was known as the poet laureates of Canada. There was a lot of hockey involved in what they wrote about. He Gord even said at the end of the concert, it was beautiful. He said, we would play for the bikers one night and then turn around and play for all the professors the next night. And everyone's invited, everyone's involved. And not just for rock music, but it just seemed a beautiful way to approach art in general. So um, pr- with the start of hockey season, 
it felt like an appropriate time to run this interview. So, you know, get, as you're getting ready to watch some hockey, maybe put on some Tragically Hip, pay more attention to Canada. Maybe you're considering moving there based on the outcome of the election. Uh, Otto Chung <laughs> uh, will give you some recommendations on Canada's greatest band, the Tragically Hip. Uh, you had to bring up the election, didn't you? And with that, we are taking a break. We'll be back with Brandon McManus in one second. Okay, let me start with the with the food. Uh, I, I was a food critic myself for a newspaper, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. And I've always maintained that it's the hardest job that seems like the easiest job. <laughs> like everyone feels like they can just go critique a meal or they can go write uh, educated commentary about a restaurant and what they're experiencing. But it's uh, it's really complicated. It's very personal. You meet the people you, you want. You're rooting for them. You're rooting for the meal. You're exploring new dishes. Tell me a little bit about your mindset with this project and maybe just kind of what you learned about your own tastes in the process. Yeah, so uh, one of my, I guess, some of my biggest things when I was doing it was, I guess it was slightly different than you. Obviously, in the newspaper, you are critiquing it. Yeah. I really didn't want to critique it. I just wanted to review and kind of highlight the restaurant. Yep. So I, I never wrote a negative column or a negative piece about anything, even if, you know, I particularly didn't like the, the item, I'd still kind of give it like an okay review, you know, talk about it, but you could tell from my, I guess, adjectives or my sentence structure <laughs> that it wasn't as good. <laughs> right. But, um, you yeah, know, my uh, wife kind of came up with the idea uh, to go on like a date night on Friday nights. And, you know, I thought the idea to kind of do like a food blog, let's check out new restaurants in Denver. Um, and I've been here about two years now. And, you know, I really hadn't gone into the city to try a bunch of new places, and um, I myself really didn't, I guess, um, I didn't have the biggest palate. I, I definitely would order the same things kind of over and over again. You know, if there was a filet uh, on the menu, I'd probably just get that. So right. one of the coolest things that this did for me was really open, you know, my mind and, and uh, to, to a lot of different foods that I would never think about ordering. You know, I started ordering duck now on menu where I'd never even think about ordering that. You know, I eat sushi now. I, I eat so many different things now just because of this experience. So that was, a, you know, something that I really took out of it myself. But you, you're right. Uh, it became very difficult, I guess, to review foods after maybe the third or fourth week because there's only so many words you could use to describe <laughs> something. Right. And, you know, you never really want to repeat yourself, as you know. So um, I don't know if you've kind of read my articles. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know how I did, I guess. But I think you did uh, great, man. I think you did really good. And look, the, half of the battle is the passion for it. It's clear you guys had a good time doing it, that you, like you said, you were stepping out of your comfort zone. I was fascinated to see how many times you said, hey, this is the first time I've tried rabbit or the first time that I've done this particular you know, part of sushi. And as an athlete, you guys are so particular about what you put in your bodies. Did you, did you have to shake free of your comfort zone to step out there and try all these new dishes? Yeah, I, I definitely think, as you said, you know, being an athlete, you, you definitely watch what goes in your body. And I really was kind of the opposite. I Just because, you know, I'm not doing that much of running around and have to be in. Obviously, I'm in really good shape, but you know, I am just, you know, a, a, a kicker. So I did eat a lot of, you know, junk food on the side, but, 
you know, kind of this, like I said, kind of changed my opinion on a lot of different things. And, um, you know, I, I would look forward to kind of the next day and, or eating different vegetables, how they're prepared. Um, the one day I think I ate a beef tongue taco, which, <laughs> you know, obviously it was really bad. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm eating things that, you know, because one, I want to do it for the kind of the food review, but also I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it myself. So, um, you know, like I said, uh, you know, I really did enjoy it. And, you know, I, what I wanted to do you know, kind of afterwards, I, I kind of wanted to build a following uh, doing the food review. And then the, during the season, I was going to have, um, going to take like a, a guest, maybe a local Denver celebrity right. uh, out to dinner to, to um, new places as well. And kind of just do maybe a 15 to uh, 30 minute um, episode every two weeks, maybe, and kind of highlight, you know, the, the person and, and the food that we're eating and the restaurant. And then do kind of like um, a five-minute segment of my wife and I either preparing a meal in the the restaurant's kitchen beforehand or in you know demonstration kitchen. So I'm still trying. We're still trying to do negotiations for that. I'm still trying to find you know somebody who who, who loves it as much as I do. Um, you know the idea. Well, well, look, Peyton. Peyton is sitting around with a lot of free time on his hands, man. So I think <laughs> he could be a good co-host there. Yeah, I know. Uh, well, let me ask you, what is the food scene like in Denver? I'm in Chicago. Uh, we've got a great burgeoning uh, restaurant area. Denver's got such a unique culture at large. What it, What is it like there? And, and maybe did you find any places that really surprised you in terms of what they offer in, in the region? Yeah, I think uh, the unique thing about Denver is it, it is obviously in the middle of the country, so it is landlocked, but... Um, I'm just speaking on, I guess, the fresh fish at this moment. You know, some of the restaurants they have, you know, they do fly in fresh fish every day still right. uh, because they do have the clientele that wants it and they, and they want to have the prestige of that. Uh, but one of the unique things, obviously, being out here is we, we have a lot of buffalo and a lot of bison, um, which, is, which is so tender. And a lot of people make it in a lot of meals, whether it's uh, bison ravioli, you know, bison burgers, obviously, uh, bison lasagna. So it's, it's, uh, it's very... It's very unique in that aspect. It's similar to the East Coast as in just using, I guess, hamburger meat type stuff, but it's obviously much leaner, much more healthier. Um, and, and also, being out here, you, you have some of these uh, restaurants, like the Buckhorn Exchange is one, for example, where you get Rocky Mountain oysters, which are obviously yeah. uh, bull testicles. Um, you know, you get rattlesnake out here. You can, <laughs> there's some cool, cool, unique things, obviously, being out here kind of on the, the western front. Uh, but... It, it definitely, and, and there's a, a high um, a high population of Mexicans and uh, Hispanics here, so we have a lot of uh, Mexican food, which is uh, which is so good. There's a lot of tacos and taquerias out here. Uh, green chili is, I think, the biggest thing that uh, they use. is green chili soup. There's green chili basic on everything out here. So that, that is one of the, um, I guess, staples that a lot of the restaurants use. You know, my last question on the food is you did this with your wife. Um Number one, do you guys ever do that thing like my wife and I do, which is we go to a restaurant, we order something we both like, and then just kind of split it down the middle? And then second, what is, how are your tastes like and different from each other? And, and did you ever find yourself completely disagreeing on, on the food that you were trying? Um, yeah, some of, some of the things uh, we did split, but one of the, I guess, things that I wanted to do, I wanted to try to sample as much food as we could. It definitely was way more food than two people should be eating or, or ever ordering. <laughs> so basically a lot of the places I made sure uh, we each had a full entree to ourselves and, um, you know, I'll try to eat as much as I could. I, even though um, 
I'm pretty uh, skinny. I still like to eat a lot of food, so um, we we definitely would try. So we, I would try her food. She would still try my food. So in that aspect, we would split it. But I would definitely try to at least order two entrees. Yeah. Uh, for for that, just to kind of and and I never wanted them to be the same. So no two meats, whether it was one chicken. Uh, there could be chicken and steak, but uh, either fish or kind of maybe a vegetarian type meal. Um, stuff like that. The only thing I guess we really disagreed was on well, uh, one of the reviews we did. I kind of did like a ranking of the tacos, and um, she, our, our tacos kind of were a little different there. She she really liked the chicken, whereas I really didn't like the chicken at all, uh, type stuff. But she she tends to stay towards um, uh, chicken and um, salmon, where I hate salmon. Salmon is the only fish that I don't eat. Wow. Uh, I love every other. Uh, every fish in the world other than salmon. I just don't like uh, the taste of it where she loves salmon. So I guess that's probably the biggest, uh, I guess, disparity between the two of us. You heard it here first, some real hot takes against against salmon. Uh, <laughs> um, so I want to talk to you also about the anti-bullying campaign. It's so valuable. Um, you're, you're so dedicated with um, the anti-bully squad and trying to reach out to youths and change, uh, you know, help the victims of bullying through education, through advocacy. How did you embrace this cause? Where did this stem from? So I was doing a, um, a charity event out here in, in Denver, and it was at the Global Down Syndrome Fashion Show. And, and one of, the, I guess, the directors of uh, the Global Down Syndrome uh, approached me and was, was kind of telling me this story about uh, this little boy named Ryder, um, who was being bullied by his neighbor and his neighbor's parents were encouraging their kids to make fun of him the way, you know, I guess he, he acted the way he threw the football in the front yard and oh, he played with his brothers. So yes, if there's something to do. So I, I definitely, um, so we, we chatted and, you know, we set up a time where I was able to go out, um, to their house and, and play football with them in the front yard as kind of a, a silent way to, uh, I guess, protest against the neighbors, you know, hopefully, you know, they were watching, um, you know, me come out there and, uh, just just to see the smile on on Ryder's face and and his mom's face and uh, and the whole family, uh, it, w- it was so rewarding for me. And that's really the, what made me want to uh, make a difference in that aspect. Um, I never was really bullied as a kid. I didn't bully uh, people. Um, one of the unique things I guess about me growing up, I went to high school with 1,200 kids in my graduating class alone. So I think there was 3,600 kids in three grades. And you know I was very athletic, so I loved hanging out with. Um, you know, all the, uh, all my, my guys on sports, but I was also super, uh, intelligent. So, you know, I went to school for biology pre-med. So I loved, you know, learning all these new things and hanging out with them too. So I was able to kind of take, um, a lot of traits from both groups and, you know, that's kind of what molded me and shaped me to who I am today. So, um, you know, I definitely wanted to make a difference in that aspect. So, uh, you know, I, I, I reached out, I was actually, um, giving lessons, kicking lessons to um, uh, Tom Peterson, who's my co-founder, his son, uh, giving kicking lessons to him. And uh, he already had a, a nonprofit organization, and uh, we kind of teamed up to, to create the Anti-Bully Squad. How, how important is it to reach kids at, the, you know, at, at a young age, uh, the victims of bullying, and, and try to empower them with solutions for how to address it, both in retaining their own sense of self-worth worth and confidence, but also strategies to combat it in a nonviolent way. Yeah, that's obviously the, the toughest things that, you know, we try to do. Uh, the, the Nowadays, with you know, these young kids and, uh, you know, I'm sick of reading. I even just got tagged in an article. I don't know. I can't remember this, 
the state he was from, but I think there was an eight-year-old who just committed suicide. I believe it was mm-hmm. New York from bullying, but uh, that's one of the most sickening things that you know we, we read and we have to deal with, and especially the parents, because a lot of time the parents don't know that their, their son's being bullied. They're, they're kind of a, they're ashamed, and they, they're scared to talk to their parents about it. So I know this is kind of a little off segment, but one of the things that Anti-Bully Squad you know, wants to do is um, kind of create uh, somebody who you can talk to, whether we have, um, you know, a guidance counselor in the school who, um, you know, supports the program and has after-school pro- um, programs that encourages kids to go to, uh, or even if someone reaches out to, you know, us, the organization themselves, you know, we'll find somebody in the city where you, you can feel comfortable to talk to. Um, you know, these kids nowadays, they don't want to be called a tattletale at all. And that's the number one thing that, you know, the kids are afraid of you know, kind of being bullied the next day if they told somebody, if they told a guidance counselor. So that's one of the biggest things we try to teach is, is, is um, you know, don't, like you said, don't lose your, your self-worth. You have to be confident. Uh, when I go out and talk to some of the um, boys and girls clubs here in Colorado, you know, one of the biggest things I always say is, I never want anybody to be like me, to be honest with you. I don't want anybody, I want to be completely different from everybody because you want to be able to be the individual. You want to be who you are. You want to be unique. And that's one of the greatest things about, you know, life is you can be completely different than somebody else but still be equal. So I, I love just kind of tell my story of, you know, like I said, with the sports and, and you know, I love drawing. I'm big in art. I'm big into um uh, education, so all those different things, just my, my story itself. And then, personally, when how I get bullied, you know, social media-wise now, um, especially all the kids in the school, every single kid is a phone nowadays. Yeah. So, you know, they hide behind a screen, they hide behind a phone, they hide behind the username. So the toughest thing is is, is being able to stop that. And, and you know, all these kids, you know, could just make make up a lie about somebody, and they have to go to school the next day, and the whole school knows about it. You know, it's a complete lie. You know, they're, they're able to do that with with social media. So that's one of the toughest things we have to combat is, is social media. I think nowadays, and you know, I still get bullied on social media. If I miss a kick, you know, you wouldn't believe the things that people say about me. You know, <laughs> so um, just just continue to talk to them about how to um, uh, healthily. You know how how to combat the situation and, and how to kind of remove yourself uh, in a smart way from uh, from being bullied. I mean, it's a great cause. I agree with you totally on cyber harassment and cyber bullying. It's such a problem, and it's only getting more uh, intense as more people kind of become linked into smartphones. Um, where can people go to get involved and to follow what you guys are doing? Yeah, so our, our website's uh, antibullysquad.org, dot org, and you know we we kind of um, we do this initial kind of a wristband. We we ask you to kind of take an oath, you know. And obviously, you, you take the oath on your own, and it's just more of a, a self worth type thing. So, you, so you kind of feel like the plea to that to yourself that you've done. You've at least took the plea, the pledge, and you know you feel like you, every day you're going to try to abide by that. And you know we'll send you a wristband to kind of spread the word. And um, we are uh, on the East Coast. The, my co-founder is out in New Jersey, and I'm obviously from Philadelphia. So we have a couple of schools out there in, on the East Coast who have done the after-school programs and setting that stuff up and, you know, just just helping raise money. And, I, you know, I do a football camp in the summer. Uh, all the donations go to that and uh, just continue to kind of build it and, 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 and kind of spread our word and give kids a, a path 
you know, somebody to talk to, you know, whether they, they don't want to talk to the parents, or we want to be, give somebody uh, somebody to talk to. That way we don't have to read these articles about them committing suicide. Man, totally agree. It's a great cause. We all thank you. I mean, I'm a parent. I thank you and other athletes who are involved in this. We w- wish everyone to go check out antibullysquad.org and, and follow you on Twitter, the Kid McManus, uh, both for your updates on that and for more food reviews, man. We we hope you uh, keep this going throughout the season and uh, and best of luck. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. For those of us, for those who are listening to this and don't know, who are the Tragically Hip and what is their cultural importance in Canada? Well, I'll tell you my experience with the culture, uh, with the Tragically Hip. Um, they're really a rock blues band that got together in the mid 80s. Uh, they got really big. Their second album was huge, was really big. But by the time I graduated from high school in 1989, Okay. You, you know how there's a there's a belief that the music that you listen to when you're 18 to 25 is the music that's stuck with you and that that's the music of of your generation of your life. Yeah, a record company guy once told me if you haven't discovered a band by the time you're 25, we assume you never will. Right. So for this for my peer group for the five years around me, the tragically hip just got huge in Canada. And we were all in college at the time. And they, were, right. they would tour colleges. Their CDs were dropping every two years. There's a new album coming out. And they kept getting better and better. So uh, they just started out as a really interesting bar kind of college rock band that had great riffs, great guitar solos, great lyrics. And uh, you just grind. You could just hold a beer and drink along with them and mm-hmm. uh, this is back when everyone had CDs and you were buying their CDs and playing their music at house parties and uh, when I finished university they released the album fully completely okay. and that was a ground shifting album because it wasn't just rock the lyrics got very mature it mm-hmm. felt like like we were getting older and the band was growing up with us that it wasn't just about drinking beer kind of music it Start talking about what makes Canada different, or what what we knew in the zeitgeist, you know, as Canadians. Mm-hmm. Um, that album had a song called "Locked in the Trunk of a Car," and it was referring to uh, a terrorism attack in Quebec in the early 1970s, where um, uh, a Quebec cabinet minister was. Kidnapped and killed, and was found in the trunk of a car. And who sings songs about that? Like U two doesn't do that, or you know Springsteen doesn't do that for Canada. That's what the tragically hit did. Things that we peripherally knew about Canada was that was then celebrated by Gord Downie's lyrics. So you brought up the lyrics and. Every article that came up about the tragically hip in the last couple of weeks used the term poet or poet laureate of Canada to refer to Gord Downey. And, and that sort of, I don't know, I guess sort of lofty language to describe this rock music takes on an interesting tone when you couple the fact that he wrote a lot about hockey um, is he also in some ways the poet laureate of hockey or Canadian hockey? And what role did hockey play 
in their subject matter? Um, it, there's a lot of uh, Canadian bands that write songs about hockey. <laughs> You'd be surprised. There's a song right, about right. there's a song about Wendell Clark. So yeah. uh, the Rayo Statics do a good job of, of writing about hockey. Um, but again, fully completely, the song Fifty Mission Cap is essentially a story about Bill Barilko. Mm-hmm. Right. The 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 he he played with the Toronto Maple Leafs back in the late fifth late fifties, and according to the song, and well, it, this really happened. But in the song, the song tells you that uh, the last goal Bill Barilko ever scored, the Leafs won the Leafs the cup. It was an overtime Stanley Cup winning goal, and then later that summer, he goes missing on a fishing trip, and they never find his body until almost ten years later. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful song, and the, the 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 music is is driving, and the lyrics just are ethereal. They don't they don't almost don't belong to this music, mm-hmm. but then it weaves in so nicely that you, as Canadians, we love the Toronto. Well, someone who grew up in Toronto, we love the Toronto Maple Leafs. You don't hear songs about the Toronto. The, the Leafs have been sucking for like forty years, <laughs> but to have someone write a song that makes you proud of the Leafs is right. mind blowing. Um, in the mid nineties, uh, the the Hip had their first concert at Maple Leaf Gardens, and I, I got tickets to it. And when they performed Fifty Mission Cap," and the line in the song that goes, "You know, the last goal he ever scored." Won mm-hmm. the Leafs the cup, right? And I'm right. in the building where Bill Barilko scored that winning goal. Shivers, right? And you look right. up to the rafters, and there's a banner of Bill Barilko, and you're you're tearing up because suddenly you're proud of being a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, a Canadian, a hockey fan, all these things in this really poetic song. Watching the concert on Saturday night, and I did watch the whole show, I was struck by, like, the music of the hip really walks a a strange, dichotomous line where it's like, I think it was Gift Shop was played near the end. Right, right. And this song is, like, referencing focus groups and things like that. And I'm just thinking to myself, this is the last performance you're ever going to give. And it just – it's beautiful – it's powerful music, but it's very, it's very strange. I mean, there's some jarring juxtapositions of imagery and sound going on there to resonate so popularly and so nationally. We're strange people up here. It's a long, <laughs> long winters. We stay inside a lot. Uh, you know, Adam Agoyan. Have you ever watched one of his uh, films? That's long shots of snow and very weird sex. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, like Scandinavians are the same way. When you're stuck inside in long winters, you become introspective. Uh, the the authors that we produce are not the Stephen King type of writers. They're uh, really in your they're re- they live inside their own heads. And uh, uh, Gord Downey, I, I used to play um, uh, hockey. I used to play goalie. Uh, in ice hockey, and Gord Downey came out to play pickup hockey with us. Okay, and yeah, this was, is this is part of why you're you're on the phone right, right. now. I wanted to hear about this as well. Like the, he was an actual hockey player. He plays I, hockey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this I I I this pickup game is organized by a bunch of Toronto rock musicians, 
so every now and then, rock bands come out and play with us, and it's kind of cool. But I, I'm a huge hip fan, and to see Gord Downey in the dress room that one that one time was uh, my jaw dropped. And uh, he introduces himself to me, and mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, I know who you are, dude. <laughs> um, and he he slaps on the oldest goalie pads I'd ever seen in my life. Uh, he, so he was had, a goalie. He's a goalie. He, well, he was trying out. To, he usually plays out. But okay. this time, he wanted to play goalie. So he picked, he had gotten these old 70s, like Ken Dryden-style goalie pads. And like he's tall. Like, Gord Downey's 6'4". Mm-hmm. So when he stands in net, when those pads, he looks like Ken Dryden. He has got the same form. So it was amazing to see him out there playing net for the first time. Um because this is what the other guys were saying about Gord, why he was wearing these old pads. Gord's a romantic. Right. Right. So he wanted to try out these beat-up old pads and see what it was like to play hockey in the 70s. And he realized really quickly he needed new pads. <laughs> it lasted about two or three games, and he went to a hockey store and bought new pads. But it was really neat to, to hang out with him. Was that the one time he came out, or was he a regular at this game? Uh, I knew at least twice, at most okay. three. So, um, yeah, the, the next time, then he came out the next week, and uh, he walked past me in the dress room and goes, Hey, Otto. I'm like, Gordon knows, Gordon knows my name. <laughs> I got well, this fanboy moment. There's got camaraderie there. He's just a regular no. guy. Yeah. But then my realization is that when you have a conversation with Gord, he doesn't say things in a normal, straightforward way. He speaks like a poet. Right. He's, he, he takes the long route to saying yes. And he finds the most awkward, but most beautiful way of saying turn left, <laughs> you know? So, uh, he, he's not, he's just, he, it's not a show. That's who he is. Like his lyrics, that's where his brain is. Well, I, I mean, look, so as somebody, I approach this, I love music and I'm sitting here doing this interview while looking at my record collection. So I I got into this story because I love music and I think it's just a powerful and profound way to share a human experience. And that's what got me into the concert Saturday night. But I mean, watching that show, this is a man that has been diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor who is, I guess we're going to skip ahead to the Saturday night portion of this, who's performing ostensibly for his last time with the entire nation watching. And he didn't seem to be, it didn't feel like a funeral dirge. I mean, he's wearing sequin jackets and feather in his cap and going about it as a full front man weirdo, which I say in the best possible sense. Um, Is that who he was this whole time? And would you have expected anything less going through the last performance? I mean, were you surprised by that? No, I think for me, the the hip has always been above themselves. It was never about them. Mm -hmm. Uh, The more famous they got, the less media they did. Right. Um, When I was doing some work at uh, TSN, this Mm -hmm. is like ESPN for Canada. Right. They're... Uh, producer after producer is trying to line up the hip to do a segment about the hip and 50 mission cap and about hockey and all that stuff. And the hip kept on saying no. Mm-hmm. Most bands would die to be some, to be have network publicity. And, but they, they were all about the music should talk, talk, talk for itself. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think the concert was about. This concert was never about Gord's illness. 
This concert mm. was never about the band breaking up. They never talked about it really that way. We're still assuming that's their this is going to be their, their last concert. We're assuming that uh, this is the last time we see Gord, but they have never talked about it that way. It was, I think they saw it as um, a celebration about of the band of the music because they played all their hits. Right. Right. Um, and and they never once talked about his illness. Uh, they never once talked about that. We'll never see each other again. They just thanked everyone mm-hmm. because it wasn't about being maudlin. All right. It was about uh, being in the moment and not thinking about what, what, what's going to happen in the future, but like imp- remembering where you are, who you're with and what you're listening to right now. It, it resonated as a moment at the same time. This was something that I watched on YouTube that was broadcast on the CBC commercial free across all of Canada. They were cutting to shots of the, the concert took place for anyone listening uh, in Kingston, Ontario, the band's hometown. And they, they were cutting to shots of like the Kingston city square that was just packed with tens of thousands of people. Yeah. Um, just it struck me. And I, there was somebody on Twitter who said, this is Canada's night to have a national conversation on life and death and culture and what it means to be a Canadian. D- does that ring true to you? I mean, what what were you feeling as you watched that concert the other night? Very rarely does a does the uh, such a large part of the of any country do anything together. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people love baseball and some people don't. So maybe some people watch the Jays. <laughs> like, right. but then everyone loves music, and this really is my this generation. You know, I'm 45, so like probably at the top end, 50 ish, down to millennials. I think right now who who want to be part of this um, moment that you'll be talking about for the rest of your life because everyone else, everyone wants to. Be, you knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. And very rarely do you get to say goodbye to your band that you that you love, you know. Especially this year, Prince passed away and no one had a chance to say goodbye because he died suddenly. And David Bowie didn't tell anyone he had cancer. So he never had a chance right. to say this was his last show. So to have a concert that you knew was the last time, or that's what we're all assuming, mm-hmm. and to be able to share that with your neighbors and to be able to and to see a room full of people saying, we all feel this the, as a national emotion. Mm. Um, you know, you, I, from what I understand, the most watched television event uh, in Canadian history was the 2010 Winter Olympics when Sidney Crosby scored the gold medal goal. Right. The Tragically Hip concert comes second. Wow! Right. It's like, so that's where that's like culturally that's where it's that's how important it was. Right. Like. Dear USA, you might not realize it, but the series finale of MASH just equivalent just happened <laughs> yeah, to right. our north. In yeah, it was that important. Right. Like it's just, just thinking about it right now. Shivers, right? Just like everyone I know mm-hmm. in my peer group was watching it and they all – it was emotionally important to them. This is a band that I grew up with. I'm an adult because of this band. Like again, like I said, I, I found them in high school – I'm 45 now. Mm-hmm. You know, that's I'm I'm a I'm an old man with this band. They were right. with me, and now it's over. And that's a huge chapter right there. To to be able to bookend it like that is rare. 
Yeah. What was what were people saying in the office like Monday morning you all come in working and uh, like I imagine it was it, everyone talks about it. Yeah, no? we were all comparing notes about where we yeah. saw it, how we felt, our favorite song. Right. That kind of stuff. Um and then just um it's not before this concert, or really before this tour, everyone was a a hip fan, but no one really talked about it. No one it wasn't part of the conversation three years ago. But you know, after their last concert in Toronto or, or that I saw with Jason Sweeney, mm-hmm. like and then this the a week later, the big concert in Kingston, um it was it was you had to be part it suddenly became a conversation it suddenly became what's your favorite album and what's your favorite song what does this song mean to you um and then i i never told anyone my gord downey hockey story it was just something that happened but i put it on facebook and be, became important to other people they wanted to know more about that story so then let me ask you what is so for people who want to get into this band what album do you suggest the only album theirs i knew was day for night yeah. and it was because i won it from the local alternative station in my hometown growing up right and i got into grace too which i think was their biggest radio hit such that it were at least in the, south States. Of the border yeah 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 and they, it, they played on saturday night live but what would you how would you recommend getting into the hip for somebody who has now has 13 albums to dig into right. in history um first three albums okay or, yeah uh that's that's where all the big hits are mm-hmm. uh up to here road apples fully completely um the, the, after that, after Day for Night, Day for Night was their kind of gloomy, darker, introspective album, and then oh, yeah, that, really, and that kind school, of music really perfect. kind of bled into the the the, the albums after that. Okay, but if you want to go hard on rock, kind of these are amazing guitar hooks. The first three albums are the are what you want to pick up. Okay, then so I guess I have a two part question here. Why do you think, look, I know Canadian bands in the States like Nickelback or (laughs) Justin Bieber or Avril Lavigne. Why did they not ever catch on here? I mean, because they make great rock music by any measure. Why not here? Why are they so Canadian? (laughs) Um, From... There's there's a lot of interesting theories about why. One is they never wanted to, that mm-hmm. they're happy be, not having to sell out to whatever the American labels want them to do, or being forced to write a a song for the American market that's more commercial than they're ready to do. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I gather, they do have a following in pockets of the states, um, but it is odd that you know north of the border the hip will sell out a, an arena and south of the border, they play a bar. Right. 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 Or, you know, they'll, they'll play the house of blues in Chicago or something like that. Right. But I don't know. I don't, um, I don't, I don't think they tried. I don't think they ever, they just wanted to be the band that they wanted to be. And I think sometimes um, selling out, I guess, to be popular in the States um wasn't there? Wasn't why they became a, a band? And if you can make a living, and they make a really good living being <laughs> the best Canadian rock band in, in you know, this country's ever created, that is fine. And sure, Nickelback probably you know they probably make more money than than, than the Hip, right? But they have to be Nickelback. Yeah, exactly. I'd rather be the Hip, right? <laughs> right. 
<laughs> no, like there was no part of Saturday. Like my wife and I were talking about it. We were driving back home in Brooklyn on Saturday. We'd gone to visit some friends and I told her I was going to stay up and watch this show. And we were – look, the the initial reaction is always to try to find an American analog to this. I was like – uh, somebody had equated them to the Grateful Dead in the sense that it was a youthful rite of passage band. Um, somebody else equated them to Bruce Springsteen that I read about in the kind of poet laureate sense. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> watching Gord on Saturday night, I was like, this reminds me of R.E.M. and yep. Michael Stipe's like sort of performance. But I don't think what I – what I finally landed on and why I'm glad we're talking is that I don't know that there is a one-to-one analogy to be made with an American band because as my wife and I were talking about, it, I was like, could you imagine a band currently existing in America that announced they were playing their last show? The president would be at that show. Yeah. It would be broadcast commercial free on the the networks. I was like, I don't know that that exists. And I, I think we're kind of worse off for it. Bluntly, so um, I think Springsteen is the closest, you know, yep. sing, sing, singing about people and stories about the people. But mm-hmm. if I'm sure, if like uh, if Bruce Springsteen and the Grateful Dead were in one band, you know, for 40 years, <laughs> right, that right. would be you know that would be a thing, right? Um, yeah, we're lucky right now. So the Prime Minister is a is a young Prime Minister. He's in his mid 40s, so he's of that generation that grew up with the band. Mm-hmm. So that's why he was there. Um, he was in his Canadian tuxedo. I noticed well. that. Yeah, it was awesome. Yes. <laughs> he gets it. He's the he's the most plugged in prime minister. I feel that um, if I were prime minister, I'd be that kind of prime minister. You know, taking <laughs> right, selfies, right. going to concerts, doing all the festivals. You know, all <laughs> like, um, getting tattoos. So. Why not? Right. Uh, but yeah, there, I don't think there's a a U.S. Anal- analogy to this. Yeah, there's nothing comparable, but I don't know. Maybe when Springsteen does retire, you well, know, like maybe that that would happen. I don't know. But there was something. So, look, there was. It was not a maudlin night on Saturday. No, but at the same time, there is something sad and tragic to watching a vibrant, seemingly healthy fifty-two-year-old. I mean, Bruce Springsteen's in his seventies now. Yeah. Uh, there was something about, you know, I think it was somebody in the New Yorker wrote about the greatest line in rock music is it's better to burn out than to fade away. The one thing that bears mentioning here, I guess, on this final tour that the hip did and reading about it, they were still playing their new album, correct? <laughs> this wasn't just like, we're going to come out and do all the greatest hits. Nope. They were like, touring in support of an album yep. and they kept that going yep. till the end as well because they're rock they're just a rock they're they don't want to be listen we you know i work in television and i keep hearing about producers trying to pitch the tragically hip to create to be in a tv show or not. they don't want anything of that it's all because they're a rock band yep yep uh- and when you tour, when you have, release an album and you go on tour, you got to play the new hits because that's that's important to you at this moment, right? Those are your favorite songs as a band right now is stuff that you just created. So that was important to them. Well, yeah, they, it was weird that um, they could have – the show in Toronto, they could have played just their hits and would have filled an hour, two hours. But, yeah, they played four or five tracks of new stuff. Which you know, again, like like any concert, when they start playing the new stuff, everyone starts going to get beer. <laughs> right. It's still yeah, it's still Gord on stage, but it's, I don't know the song. I think I'm thirsty. 
Uh, yeah, that was that was happening at, at the concert. Well, then I guess as we wrap up, I w- I have to say that I just found like they play the last song of the night on Saturday, potentially the last song in this band's history. Right. Um, Ahead by a century, correct? Yes. That was that was the closer. Yeah. And uh, as it ended, Gord just kind of like looked out over the crowd and pantomimed like he was painting a picture yep. of the That's, whole scene. Yeah, I think for him it was like he's capturing the moment. I, it was a gorgeous final image. Yeah. It was so – I don't know. It, it looked – it was just it was an amazing thing to watch. So I just I guess I ask you, like, any final thoughts on this band, the Tragically Hip, and what they meant as a band, as a Canadian, as a hockey fan, any of it? Um, they they made me proud to be Canadian. I mm-hmm. would take their albums when I travel around the world, and um, I would just play their music when I was in Hong Kong or traveling through Europe, and it always took me home mm-hmm. uh so that's a big part of why they're mostly attached to me yep. um but th- f- you know yeah that this last show he was in full gourd <laughs> and that's what that's the last thing you, that's the last way you, if that's his last image and that's the last show they finished on a huge high you know yeah. it's kind of like the band's last waltz yep that's that, a very that's probably yep. the closest american well, that's, the band yeah, is a canadian yeah. band yeah. Yeah, good right. point. Good point. But, yeah, but and, but like that was they if they finish here, they it's the pinnacle, you know, to be broadcast worldwide on the internet, mm-hmm. uh, nationwide live on the CBC on all the platforms during the Olympics. They stopped the Olympics broadcast for this band. <laughs> right. Right? That's yeah. like you couldn't get better than this. And if you're a band, this is what you this is how you want to finish. This is a rock star finish right here, right? Yeah. Good night, everyone, and mic drop and get out, right? And that's and that and they will the way they are, they'll probably never do another interview. They'll never talk about this again. And yep. which is great because then they don't never say anything wrong. Right? Well, yeah. I it's mean, kinda the like Beatles... the, when when Led Zeppelin was yep. big, they never did media. And that mystery built that mystique built their marketing machine. Mm-hmm. And same thing with the hip. They they don't talk. They let the music talk. And whatever you think they are, that's what they are because they never tell you who they actually are. Yeah. God bless a little mystery. In yeah. We don't have enough mystery. Absolutely. And we are back. When athletes do cool things, make music, movies, pick up hobbies. A lot of media and coaches label it a distraction, but we know that life is work and the things that distract us from work. So we're going to take a little bit of time to tell you what's been distracting us these days. And guys, I am going first. Let's talk Hellraiser movies. So... There are sure there are there are many of them. Like I think something like twelve. The the first one, Clive Barker's, you know, cinematic masterpiece, is, and I mean this sincerely, a good movie. It's not like a good for a horror movie or a good slasher movie. It's just a really interesting movie about the nature of it's really about, you know, sadism, sadomasochism. Um, 
you know, even, the, you know, unlike Freddy and Jason who are just there to kill, you know, the, 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 the Cenobites, Pinhead and his, and his cohorts talk about they are demons to some but angels to others. And, and they're really just there to bring hum, humans into further reaches of experience. It's very weighty stuff. It's very cool. Uh, didn't quite maintain that level of thoughtfulness through the 10 to 12 <laughs> sequels that came, including one that <laughs> took Pinhead to space. Uh, not a good, not a good record for slasher movies in space. Jason X also not among my favorite <laughs> Friday the 13th movies. Uh, I will a quick ranking, by the way, uh, six is the best. <laughs> six is the best. Then four, then two on the Jason movies. Anyway, if you it's coming up on Halloween, but you digress. Yeah, if you come, coming up on Halloween, I would definitely recommend check out the first Hellraiser. There's there's always rumors that it's going to be remade. Uh, I think that's a mistake, but there's some acting and special effects that are left. Uh, you know, remain to to see what modern techniques could do to improve them. I will say there's a there's a podcast I discovered called The New Flesh. I think it's called, and they just talk about horror movies. And they've got a pair of episodes on Hellraiser one and Hellraiser two. Hellraiser two an abomination just <laughs> just it was made like eight months later i mean come on what are you doing so <laughs> they, they have a pretty hilarious takedown of it and and they play this roger ebert ebert clip that's got to be on youtube where roger ebert is taking it down and at one point he's like it's the type of movie you could walk into at any time and it would make no difference because none of it adds up uh so anyway <laughs> i i advise uh Go watch the first Hellraiser. It is genuinely disturbing and thought-provoking. And then uh, go laugh at all the remaining Hellraisers. And happy Halloween. Gareth. All right. Uh, Speaking of movies, my distraction is going to come in the form of a question, Alex. Uh, My distraction in the last (laughs) couple of weeks is a short film called Humans and Resources. Yeah. That was directed... By none other than our producer, Joe Reed. Joe, Joe and a few friends made this. Let me introduce it. Joe might be modest. I'm not. I think this thing is awesome. Uh, They made it as part of the Chicago edition of the 48-hour film festival. And it is a funny, funny, cool movie that I will not give too much away on by way of spoilers, but Joe, I want to know about what it was like to make that movie, uh, how you did it. And just tell me a little bit about humans and resources. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a fun project. We got the idea. Um, our company does this sort of program where you can sort of submit ideas. You know, what would you do if you had, um, a little bit of money to sort of take an adventure or go somewhere. And so we thought like, what if a few of us got together and we entered this contest, we got graphic designers and copywriters and video editors and shooters and producers um, all here uh, where we work together at our agency. So it's like, what if we took the skills we use for our clients in making short form content um, and put it towards a film festival and do all of that uh, in 48 hours or less. So the basic shtick is you uh, go to this um, meeting on a Friday night and you draw a genre out of a hat. And Brad uh, was pleased to eventually hear the two genres read you were sports and fantasy. Gareth, you'll be happy to hear the first thing Brad said to me when he found out what we drew was like, 
Are you serious? You didn't call me sports and fantasy. I already have the script for Kazam 2 ready to go. It's in my drawer. <laughs> um, I'm waiting for the call. So I, yeah, I'm glad not, you didn't make that. <laughs> exactly. I think I think we ended up with something we're proud of. But um, so you pick one of these genres. So you don't know what you're getting until Friday night. And then you have until Sunday night to uh, come up with an idea, shoot it, edit it and hand deliver it. Uh, and then you compete against, I think there were like 55 other teams in Chicago. So we decided to go uh, with a fantasy. We picked fantasy as our genre um, and just dove in. It was it was a crazy weekend. Um, but yeah, we had a blast making it. Joe, what was the hardest part of the process? Because I can't even imagine going soup to We can barely get this podcast made every week. I can't imagine going soup to nuts on a on an actual short film that had the quality of uh, of what you guys produced. I think the biggest barrier was um, was the first hurdle was was picking picking our idea. Um, you know, we come back with fantasy well, hold on. We're all in the well, conference room here. Go for it, Gareth. Let me ask you a question. So, with that, aren't there also <laughs> uh, Three oh. things you have to have in there too, like yes, because that seems like an additional it. minefield. Yeah, so uh, along with the genre, which you draw out of a hat, so another team could have gotten a musical and a western, and they have to pick one of these two, or time travel, or kung fu, or coming of age movie. It could be any. There's like fifty genres. Along with that, you have to have a specific line of dialogue which in our case, or for everyone, is uh, it can't be that difficult. You had to have a character's name, which was Iris Berman, and you had to have a prop, which was a cassette tape. So if you drew a Western, you had to have a cassette tape somewhere in your film. Everyone has to have these three to prove that you made it within the 48-hour window. Um, So those were, our writers did a really good job of incorporating those, and I think we used them pretty well throughout throughout the short film. Where was but honestly, where was the cassette just, tape? Cassette tape was at the end when uh, we're doing diversity training. It's when. Um, oh, right. Yes, uh, yes, 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 yes. There yes, it is. Yes. OK. Um, so I honestly think the toughest part was we came back, we brainstormed. We weren't sure if we were going to do sports or fantasy. So we kind of split up, came back together after a little bit of a brainstorm and pitched, you know, the other half of the group on here's our best fantasy ideas. Here's our best sports ideas. We probably went back and forth, whittling it down to the final two for like, I don't know, seven or eight hours. Like it was probably three in the morning before we just said, you know, screw it. We're going with the fantasy idea. Um, And then you just don't have any time to stop. The writers are working on an outline and working on a script. By the time they're done with that, we've got our actors ready. We got our art department has gone out early in the morning on Saturday and put together amazing costumes and gotten makeup and props. And we do a table read. And then while we're doing that, our camera department is setting up the first location. And when we're done with the table read, we go and start shooting. It was just, you just don't have time to stop and think. Um, So once we picked the idea, it was just nonstop until, you know, hitting the deadline. Well, it was very well directed. I thought the shot where it racked from your face to the die in your hand was exceptional and oh, I, I thought the music was fantastic and the graphics were great and um joe is it okay can we post a link of that on our website well i am totally fine sharing it people um family have reached out to me have asked can we share this with friends i am 
all in favor of more eyeballs well, seeing it. So if you've yeah. been working in an edit facility with me in the last two weeks, you've seen it. So <laughs> we're just going to go ahead and share it. <laughs> so. hey, all right. Sounds good. Hey, Gareth, uh, let me ask yeah. you. I don't know. Can you? Do any of you pricks update the website? Touche, <laughs> oh, yeah. Brad. Touche. Hold on. Yeah. Touche. Let me let me go ahead and make another note of that. By the way, Gareth, Joe and I have to laugh about this because he he grabbed me the other day. We were we were fast and furiously tweeting during the uh, the the debate, and Joe's like. <laughs> Joe's like, that wasn't just you, was it? And I'm like, no, no, Gareth jumped in. We were like tag team in the debate. And he's like, yeah, real tonal shift from Brad just like retweeting athletes and making jokes to Gareth posting like how the how democracy is ending due to Trump. <laughs> I spotted it immediately. I was like, one tweet was like, this is like a GM giving a coach a pep talk when they're 0-5. I'm like, oh, that's kind of a fun, clever sports analysis. And then the next tweet was like, one of our national parties has nominated a straight up racist. I was like, whoa. <laughs> All right. Like just that one answer to that question was it just I don't know. We should edit this out, but that was it was sort of shocking to me when he was just like, oh like when he ended the question about inner like the black guy asked a question, it is all about inner cities. And then he ends it with, You're just getting more of the same Barack Hussein. Obama. I was like, my God, dude, like just try to hide it. So yeah, I don't think anybody will disagree that it was, uh, that it's just been an interesting process. That is our show for this week. If you didn't like it, remember what Malcolm Jenkins says about bow ties. The beauty, my friends is in the imperfection. Thank you to all of our listeners. In the words of Chris Cluey, you are the beautiful and unique sparkle ponies who keep us coming back week after week. Please subscribe, rate, and review us. Or even just, hey, recommend the show. If you like the show, tell a couple people to download it and check it out. If they like the show, great. Uh, email us tips, thoughts, topics, just on sports at Gmail. Find us on Twitter, Instagram. Joe, several beams have been posted from Southern California during my vacation. We are learning. Oh, damn. We are learning the platform. Uh, we'll end with some shout-outs. I want to give a shout-out to Brandon McManus. Not just for coming on the show and talking about the food blogging, which is is cool, which you might have already read about on The Ringer. We do really think that his anti-bullying crusade is awesome. Uh, we've talked openly about this. Some people, some shows won't talk to athletes or they, they kind of like begrudgingly talk to athletes about their charitable stuff. And yeah, I get it. If the guy's doing a golf tournament, like I don't care. But when a guy is like going to people's homes to do anti-bullying stuff and like going outside in the front yard to throw a football with a with a kid who's got Down syndrome and whose neighbors have been openly mocking him to show him that it's cool and that Broncos think he's cool. Yeah, we can come on the show and talk about it. So, Brandon, keep up the good work. Uh, if you want to know more, go to his social channels and check out uh, several of the links to his um, organizations. It's a great cause. Gareth, uh, got any shout outs? Oh, yeah. I want to thank Jason Sweeney and uh, on Twitter as Sween and Otto Chung for uh, he, Jason helped set up that interview with Otto Chung um, and Otto for coming on the show. Um, and that would be it. Joe, do you want to do Adam's regular shout outs? Oh, gosh, I can't replace Adam. My shout out was going to be f uh, to Adam. Uh, he's not with us. 
Uh, and I just want to give him a shout out uh, and s- tell him we miss him and we love him and we can't wait to have him back. Okay. Damn right. Well, let's damn just, right. Let's make Joe some extra editing. Let's hear from our man Adam on who he wants to shout. Adam, wants to take us out? Um. So as usual, I want to say shout out to uh, my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, the legend. Nice little Swanee, Meech, Ron Mack, and I remember this time my other cousin Ron. Love those guys. Thank you for all you do. Um, and in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal. Booty rappers. Booty rappers. Stay, Stay booty. booty. Stay booty. Booty. <laughs> <laughs>